No, no, I, I didn't draw any attention to that whatsoever. Well, good morning, everyone. Well, what a great day to get an extra hour of rest. Amen. That's always a good Sunday is when you fall back and capture another hour. Well, it's good to see everyone. Man, I love seeing baby dedications. There's nothing like them. Amen. We are grandparenting to the near exhaustion right now. So poor Brenda. She thought she got a little reprieve when the kids went off trick-or-treating and then her doorbell wouldn't stop ringing. So she just didn't get any rest whatsoever. I want to take you back through a story in the Old Testament. We're not going to dwell there. But in 1 Samuel is the story of Saul, tribe of Benjamin, um, specimen of a, of a man, head and shoulders, taller than anyone else. And, and the people chose him. Oh, well, God kind of gave in to their choice. They wanted a king. And, and that story of his rise to become the first king of Israel and then his failures, his demise, his um, complete collapse of his reign. And here comes a, a teenage shepherd boy, of all people, to take his place. Now, he didn't actually take his place right then. But uh, David, as a young person, was described as someone who is after God's heart. Have you ever thought about that? What, what is it like to be after God's heart? What about the heart of God? Let alone know what the heart of God is and to be after God's heart. If you go over to uh, Acts chapter 13, Paul is preaching and he talks about this. He goes back and talks about Samuel and Saul and, and uh, around verse 22, he said that, God testified about David. God said this about David, that I have sought for a man. I have found David, um, son of Jesse, as a man after my own heart. Now, it's one thing for us to look at someone else and, and we compliment them, but when God says that about you, when it was God that said that about David, it wasn't Samuel. Samuel would have never chosen David on his own, would he? In fact, he thought David's oldest brother was, wow, well, that guy looks like, you know, he's a leader, Eliab. And, and he heard the Holy Spirit say to him, no, that's not Saul's replacement. And he goes through all of the boys in Jesse's house that was there, and the Holy Spirit telling him, and that's, he's not it, and he's not it. And he said, do you have any more sons? And he said, well, we got the youngest. He's out, he's out tending the sheep while we're having this most important meeting with the prophet. And he says, you go get him. And as soon as Samuel saw him, Samuel would have never come to this conclusion on his own. Even God tells the prophet, a great prophet, Samuel is one of the greatest prophets. He said, Samuel, you like everybody else tends to look on the outside. You would have never picked that boy by his stature, by his physical appearance. He said, but I see what's inside him. I see a heart that's after my heart. What a great compliment, right? A man after God's own heart. Now, 
What about the heart of God? What is the heart of God? Let me modify the question a little bit, and I think it helps us, helps us understand or maybe come to an answer. What is the heart of God? What is the heart of God like? Let me just add a couple of words. What is the heart like of God the Father? Because I think when you put that dimension with God, God is the Father, our Father, you kind of start putting together what the heart of God is like. Just like we had this dedication in. Will's a brand new father, brand new experience. It sometimes is breathtaking, and I know it is for Rachel, to, to look at what came from the two of you. Just like we held our son. We had our son first, and then five years later, after a lot of convincing Brenda that she would not be as sick as she was with Jason, she agreed to to have another child. And she was just as sick with Kelly. So that was it. She says, time out. This is no more. This is two. I wanted five, two. You're not the one carrying the babies and throwing up every day. I am. So you win the argument. But when you hold that firstborn, you just see the little fingernails and the little features and you're like, how magnificent is this? And all these emotions that you didn't know you had starts pouring out of you. That's unexplainable. That's what God's heart is like, but it's much bigger than that. And we're going to take a little bit of a journey this morning on exploring God's heart. I'm going to take you, first of all, to Matthew chapter 3, because when you talk about God the Father, you have the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. One God expressed in three persons. That is hard for people to understand. Anybody understand that? You're more than welcome to come up here and explain it to the rest of us. Because I, I, don't, I don't have an answer because it doesn't fit into our mathematical minds, does it? Three persons, one God. God the Father, God the Son, Holy Spirit. And the debate over the Trinity is not going to end this morning. It, has, it will never end. Because people just can't process that there's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But when Jesus launched his ministry in Matthew chapter 3, he was 30 years of age. You think about that. God in flesh. Jesus, the Word in flesh, lived 30 years without doing one miracle, preaching one sermon, not doing anything in ministry taking care of his mother and his younger siblings. Obviously, his father, Joseph, his earthly father, is no longer on the scene. But he waits till 30 years of age, and he walks down off the banks of the Jordan River outside of the city of Jericho, and there waiting for him in the water is John Baptist. And after they had this little discussion, because John realizes he's in over his head baptizing Jesus, and and Jesus just lays all of those concerns to rest, says, this is what God wants us to do. I'm going to pick this up in verse 16 of Matthew 3. And it says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. 
And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. On the same site, same setting, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is baptized, comes up out of the water, water's dripping off his face, his beard, his hair. And here comes a dove and lands on him, and a voice speaks, an audible voice speaks from heaven, saying, this is my son. This is, he's not saying, this is my servant. This is my own son, my beloved son, and I'm well pleased with him today. What an affirmation, right? If you drop on down to verse or chapter 17, something very similar happens in the middle of Jesus' ministry. He's got Peter, James, and John, and they hike up this mountain to have a, some time alone, maybe in prayer, maybe, who knows what they've been told, but they, they excuse themselves from the other nine disciples. And here they go up on this mountain, the four of them. And in verse 5, you know, Jesus, Jesus is turned glistening white right in front of him. His countenance changes into this glow. And, you know, Moses and Elijah show up. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Moses and Elijah shows up and talks to Jesus face to face. Peter, James, and John, they're watching this. And Peter says, you know, we really need to make some memorials here for this. This is, like, pretty good. And while he's talking, this is how verse 5 goes. While Peter is still talking, there's a voice that comes from out of that glow and says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Still an affirmation. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Now, now just follow me just for a moment. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in placement of Jesus. Jesus tells the disciples, I'm going. I'm going to send up. I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to leave you without help. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be your helper. He will endue you with power. You'll be my witnesses. And he says the Holy Spirit's role when he, when he takes possession of you, the Holy Spirit will teach you about me and he will bring your attention to me. And he will convince the world of their need for salvation. So the Holy Spirit's role is to bring attention to Jesus, not to himself. The Holy Spirit's role in our lives is to bring our attention to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's role when we talk to people is to convict them. We don't do a very good job of conviction. But the Holy Spirit is to convict them. And he convicts them of the truth that Jesus died for their sins, that he was buried, and three days later he was bodily raised up to break forever the power of sin and the domination of a, a fear of death and to release people who are captive. And when that happens, when they're convicted, Jesus invites those persons to receive him and become part of the family of God. In John chapter 1, this is played out so beautifully. It says that Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. But verse 12 says, But as many 
has received him. As many as who embraced that message, to them he gave power to become sons or children of God, even to those who believe on his name. And if you don't understand what he's talking about, verse 13 sounds like this. Children, children born not of natural descent, not a biological thing here. You know, Nicodemus, when Jesus was talking to him about being born again, he's like, um, am I supposed to go back in and have a womb experience? He says, how, how does that work? He says, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about biology. I'm talking about something supernatural. Verse 13, children born not of natural descent, not of human decision, or husband's will, but listen to these last four words, but born of God. Born not of man, but born of God. And when that happens, your spiritual paternity is now established. You're children of God. You're sons and daughters of the Lord. And Jesus says, when you address God and when you pray, you begin with these words. Our Father who art in heaven. You're now part of the family of God, and you can address God as a sovereign God, but he's more than the sovereign God. He's now your spiritual father. You have a relationship with him now. You belong to him. You're in the family of God. You didn't join it. You didn't fill out an application. You had to be born again. A lot of people can join a church. A church will never save you. You know, I asked a young man who stopped this week, and uh, Larry had already witnessed to him, and, and, and I got a, lot of, a little bit of the, you know, the background of where he's been at. He's had a rough, rough go. And, and I says, well, have, have, you been, have you been born again? And some people say, well, those, that word, I'm just telling you, Jesus talked to Nicodemus about being born again. I think it's okay if we talk to people about being born again. And I said, have you been born again? He says, well, you know, I got baptized in water. I says, it's not what I ask you. My mother said she got baptized five times. She went down a dry center and came up a wet center. <laughs> but she was desperate. She didn't know what to do. She didn't, she didn't understand. She knew that, that she, her life was in, in a mess. And she was troubled and she was reaching and, and she'd go to church and the first thing they want to do is baptize her and sign her up for membership. And I told this young man, he says, you can be baptized 15 times and join 35 churches. And all that means is that you've been baptized 15 times and joined 35 churches. Because none of that can save you. You have to be born again. And when you get, ba get back to Matthew chapter 7, Jesus begins to talk to everybody about ask. And you will receive, seek, and... You will find knock, and it will be open to you. And then he adds this. Everyone that asks, receives. Everyone that seeks, finds. And everyone that knocks, it will be open to you. But watch verse 9 of Matthew 7. Because he brings in a contrast of what that means. About asking, seeking, knocking. And this is what he's getting at. This is the whole message that he's getting at. He says, which of you, 
If his son, child, asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake, a serpent? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven... There's that relationship again. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, it is true that when growing up, we can take our experiences with our earthly parents and kind of move them over, and, and our perspective of God is maybe tempered by that. If you've had a very bad experience or a poor relationship with your father, and you hear God our father, and you think of those things, you think of those memories... You ought to hit the pause button because that's not the way you should look at it. And even if it's the best of parents and the best of life and the best home experience you could possibly have, this is what, he's, this is what the Lord is saying. If you and I as earthly people know how to bless our children to the best of our abilities, it doesn't even hold a candle to what God wants to do. Even at our best, God is way elevated above what we can do for our own children. And this is his point. Look at the heart of fathers, the heart of parents. Just as we had a baby dedication, we celebrate children. We celebrate their worth. We are in awe of the magnificence of life. It is amazing, isn't it? But here's just a few things, and and I'll finish up here in just a moment. Fathers are by nature protectors. It's our nature to protect. It is our nature to spread our influence over our children as much as possible to try to keep them from injury, whether it's physical injury or making terrible decisions down the road. As grandparents, we learn the proper use of car seats. Car seats. They're so frustrating. Do you know they have an expiration date on them? Who in the world thought of that? Does that mean the straps don't work anymore? You know, and they're telling me, like, you're supposed to have this on the back, and it's like, I remember when cars didn't have car seats at all, or seat belts at all. There was no seatbelts. In August of 1962, we piled into a blue and white Ford station wagon, 55 Ford station wagon, seven of us, heading through Arizona up to Oakland and came across to the salt flats of Utah with no air conditioning and no seatbelts. Seven people packed into that blue and white Ford station wagon, and we thought we were having a good time. And the youngest, my baby sister, was not even a year old. You can just see her being passed around all over the car. And and mother up there making sandwiches, had the glove compartment down and spreading sandwiches and passing sandwiches over. And, you know, by the time we, the first sandwiches are, we're calling for seconds. And dad says, your mother hasn't even ate yet. Can you children just put a lid on it for a little bit? And we had our big meals with a Coleman stove on one of those roadside parks. 
come on. Sweating. It was great. We didn't know any better. Now, I don't remember as a young father, I, I think I had a 68 Ford Fairlane. I don't know if it had seat belts or not. Somebody probably cut them out of there. I don't know. But it was like really banged up. I bought it for $250. But it had a 289 engine and it would fly. <laughs> Absolutely fly. And my three-year-old son's best place to ride with me is standing on the front seat right next to me with his arm around my neck. We were buds. How stupid could I be? You know, it's like, what is some, somebody stopped in front of us. One day we was exiting up on one of the freeways there in Jacksonville, and I looked back and I saw a clearance and I hit it, and this little lady in front of me just stopped right in front of me. I swerved. I was, it's too late to put, I swerved, went over into the gravel and grass, and that Ford Fairlane was doing this, and I was, and, and I got up, and, and I was shaking, and my legs was shaking, and here's what Jason said. That was fun. <laughs> I said, no. This is not supposed to be a roller coaster, son. It's like, let's not do that anymore. But I'm thinking about, what do we think now? I mean, you have to, we have a four-year-old granddaughter that is an escape artist in a car seat. We need a monitor on her. We need, like, when the dean goes off, when your seatbelt comes off, we need some kind of electronic device to let us know she's done it again. But she, she learned how to get her arms out of the straps. You know that? She'll put that down. She's already taught her two-year-old brother how to do that. That child is in for a lot of trouble because he's got the nonconformists of the world leading the charge. But what, what do we, we want, we want them to buckle up in case there's an accident because their safety matters. Not, it's not about a ticket. It's all about if, if we are in an accident, we want to be as safe as we can, right? That's part of our nature is protect. That's God's nature is to protect us. God has a heart of patience. Aren't you glad he's not like us? <laughs> there ought to be a collective amen on that. God is not a man. He is God, and he is beyond patient with us. We are impatient. We pull the string on someone, pull the plug on someone. They, they, they really violate our trust a couple of times. That's it. And Jesus was posing this to Peter. He said, Peter... You know, Peter wanted to know, how often do you forgive? And he's like, let's go for seven times. And Jesus says, no, that's, that's not going to work, Peter. How about 70 times seven? And it wasn't even about doing the math there. He was making a point, says, if your father forgives you constantly, constantly, how can you not forgive people? And see, our tendency is we lose patience. But God never gets impatient with us. We might think he does, but again, I think we start imposing on him what we would think about, right? You know, we kind of write people off. I just about wrote my brother off about getting saved. I said, it's going to take a, you know, I, I don't think the guy's ever going to get saved. And then one day the Lord just saves him in his kitchen. Not in church, in his kitchen. 
falling on his knees and accepted Jesus and was transformed. You know, all this time, it's like, that wasn't a strain on God. And God was patient all the time that we weren't patient with him. And here's the last thing. God wants to meet our needs. Think about it. When your child asks for some bread, do you give him or her a rock? And the contrast is borders on absurdity, doesn't it? Well, that, that's crazy. But he's making a point. No, you, would, you wouldn't do that. You'd give, them, you'd give them what they needed. This is part of our heart. Well, the Lord is making a point here. If you know how to do that and you're earthly and you're evil, how much more does your father give to you? Not by begging, but willingly give. You know, in some ways, God is our 911. He is our rescuer. I wanted to sing that song. He came to my rescue. I called. You answered. And you came to my rescue. And I want to be where you are. This is the heart of God the Father. God the Father wants to come to your rescue. Because he cares about the dilemma you're in. He wants to dive into your dilemma as a nurturing, from his nurturing heart into your pain, into your distress, into your disappointments, into your guilt, and he wants to rescue you. This video is from the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. There's no words that's in this video but I believe the message will be clear to you as you watch it.
If you being evil know how to assist your injured child, if we as earthly people will come to the rescue of our own children, what do you need the Father to do for you today? What rescue do you need Him to do? What a, what a powerful message. I can't watch it. I've already watched it enough. But it reminds me of what Jesus said. We parents can go the, to great lengths, can't we? To help our children. It doesn't even come close. Brandon, if you can come on up. It doesn't even come close to what God wants to do. What, what is it you need the Lord to do for you today? He's willing to meet you this morning. Would you stand with me?